Greetings, my fellow Earthlings. How are you? What is happening? What's going on? You know the deal. Hope your weekend was great, and now that it's officially fall. Yes, last week I thought it was the 21st, but for whatever the reason, today it is a Monday, September 23rd, in the year of our Lord, 2019, as fall kicks off, just as well as this podcast will, as I deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, J Reels. For those listening for the very first time, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content. And for those who have been with me on this episode, for now 92 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Here's what I'll have on tap for you today. All the NFL stuff, week three, winners and losers, the headlines. Of course, the big one here in New York is Daniel Jones, who takes over for Eli Manning and wins in resounding fashion. Of course, I'll talk about that. Talk about the 0-3s versus the 3-0s, and now also... The NBA Envy, as I call it, where the NFL player empowerment looks like it's seeping into the National Football League. I'll get into all that later on in the podcast. But I'm going to kick it off as we start the final week of the baseball season. It seemed as if March 28th was five minutes ago when the Mets kicked off their season in Washington, where the Yankees were at home against the Baltimore Orioles. And now here we are down to the final week as preparations for those who have visions of either making the postseason or having long postseason runs or certainly dancing in the organizations and the fans of each of these cities, whether you're in New York or in the Bronx in particular, in Houston, in L.A. for the Dodgers, in Minnesota if you're the Twins, and other cities, of course, that are still looking to secure the postseason position for whomever it may be, whether it's in Milwaukee, yes, in New York with the Mets, and also Oakland, Tampa, and Cleveland. And I'll start off with the American League only because we've talked about the Mets ad infinitum. I'll get to them a little bit later on, but it's not about them right now. It's about the teams that are just that close to making it into the postseason. And a lot of these teams, especially in the American League, they've certainly played well and kept themselves in position, unlike the Cubs, and we'll certainly get to them in a little while. But when you look at that three-team race in the American League wildcard, whether it's the Oakland Athletics, who have certainly played well, as well as the Indians, who had a great week as they beat up on the Tigers, where the Tigers, believe it or not, 18-1. and one. And we know the Tigers are the worst team in baseball. But if the Indians do make it to the postseason, they could certainly attribute those 18 victories against the Tigers by making it into the AL wildcard. And even Tampa, for that matter, who, after a tough stretch late last week, losing that first game in L.A., and then, of course, they lost the back end of that series to the Angels, they were able to salvage that second game and won the first two games against the Red Sox over the weekend before losing yesterday. And they have a wraparound four-game series, which concludes tonight. And as we look here down the stretch of this final week where Oakland, right now they're in very good position, although these teams are only separated by the slimmest of margins. Obviously, it could take a two- or three-game losing streak to have it all just fall apart here as 2019 comes down to its final week. The A's currently have the top spot in the American League wildcard, so they would host if the season ended today at 94-62. and 62. And then Tampa and Cleveland are deadlock even at 92-64. and 64. And wouldn't it be perfect that a week from today, we would have a playing game between Cleveland and Tampa for the rights to go to Oakland to play that wildcard game? Because as of right now, when you look on the schedule, the American League will host the wildcard game a week from this coming Wednesday. And the National League game will be a week from tomorrow. So the American League certainly has a little leeway where if they have to travel, let's say if Cleveland goes to Tampa or vice versa, they certainly have a day where they can recoup and then fly out to Oakland to play that wild card game as opposed to the National League, which that's not going to be the case. But if by some crazy stretch of the imagination that somehow, some way, whether it's either the Cubs and the Brewers or the Mets and the Brewers, and who knows, even the Nationals, they certainly haven't played well down the stretch. But if any one of those teams somehow, someway happened to tie and it would be a playing game, not only would they play that game on Monday, but then they'd have to go the next day to play in that wildcard game. So certainly not a lot of leeway as far as time is concerned, unlike the American League, if there happens to be a playing game next Monday. And when you look at the schedule here for these teams, the Indians have the White Sox for three starting tomorrow. And both of these series, they go to Washington after that, of course, are on the road. And the White Sox actually have played the Indians very well this year. The Indians have lost nine of the 16 matchups to the White Sox, who's certainly been a little thorn on their side. 
So the Indians certainly have their work cut out for them, as well as the other two teams, but even more so because these games are on the road. And they have to end in Washington, like I said, where who knows what the Nationals, they may be fighting for their playoff lives, or at least getting that home, that top spot in the NL wild card to secure that game to whether it's Milwaukee, the Mets, etc. And I'm sure you're not going to see Max Scherzer there because Scherzer is going to be the guy that's going to pitch, you would think, the Tuesday night, so they'll miss him. But I'm sure you're going to see Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin pitch over the weekend. So the Indians certainly probably have the tougher road because Tampa, although they had the Yankees coming in after the Red Sox tonight for two games, they go to Toronto to wrap up their regular season. And then Oakland, who again with that two-game lead over the two teams that I've mentioned, Oakland goes to L.A., the Angels that is, before wrapping up in Seattle for four games. So Oakland looks like they're going to be the team that hosts the wild card. And it's just a matter of whether it's going to be Cleveland or Tampa. Now, Oakland, can they stub their toe here and somehow, some way, fall down to the second wild card spot even out of it? Oh, absolutely. With baseball, you never know. But these teams have really been consistent down the stretch. You know, a lot of these teams haven't faltered. A lot of these teams... And you could say maybe, hey, they're due to have a bad stretch to where they lose three or four in a row. But when you look at the competition here, you'd be pretty surprised that if Oakland somehow, some way, goes to Seattle and loses three out of four. Or even with the playoffs on the line for the Indians to go to Chicago and drop two out of three. Is it out of the realm of possibility? Absolutely not. But you would think, pedal to the metal, it's been a playoff game pretty much every day since the All-Star break for the Indians. They certainly haven't been able to get over the hump although they've gotten close a couple of times, especially with the race for the AL Central with the Twins early on. But they let that slip away. And now you would think with the pedigree of Terry Francona, as well as what they've had to endure this year, and that's not to say Tampa didn't have their own issues, because Tampa certainly have fought hard and long. When you think about Blake Snell, who's pitching tonight against the Red Sox, he of the 6-7 and seven with a 4-2 ERA, and he's the reigning AL Cy Young Award winner. So it's not as if these teams haven't had their moments or certainly haven't had their downs. As we all know, baseball season has peaks and valleys. But now here we come, down the stretch, the final week. How I look at it, I'd rather see Cleveland in the game. No offense to the people in Tampa. Now we understand that Oakland's probably going to hang on and get that one seed as far as the wild card's concerned. But you'd want to see Francona. you want to see Cleveland, at least I do. Cleveland, obviously, have been in the mix here as far as the playoffs over the last few years. Of course, they made it to a World Series in 2016. And now it's just a matter of who's going to be able to go on a little bit of a winning streak or just win enough games to either A, get that second wild card spot, or B, a week from today, we'll be talking about one of these two teams hosting a playing game to pretty much start off the hunt for Red October to see who will be the 2019 World Series champion. And that's pretty much what you have with the American League. The Twins are the only team in baseball that have not secured a division. All the other teams have iced their divisions, sprayed the champagne. Now we're just waiting for the Twins to do so. And the Twins have a four-game lead. If you're looking at such a thing where, hey, can the Indians somehow, some way win a division? And they can mathematically. But to be back four games with six to go, not only would they have to win every game, but they would have to have the Twins to go two and four just to have a playing game. And I don't even think they would have that considering what the tiebreaker is. I would think the Twins probably had a better record than the Indians. So off the top of my head, I don't know that. But you just have to look at the wild card right now if you're in Northeast Ohio. And the baseball season pretty much comes down to that. A little bit more intriguing and fascinating from the American League standpoint. You wouldn't have thought that a couple of weeks back, considering all the teams that were in the mix in the National League. And before I get to the National League and break that down, the interesting thing here in New York with the Yankees, and I haven't talked about them in forever, but the only reason why I'm going to bring them up now is because they've had quite a few storylines and quite a few things happen over the past week that certainly need to be detailed and mentioned. We talk about the best record in the AL, which right now is looking like the best record in all of baseball because the Dodgers, right now, as of today... Their record is 156. They're two games behind the a, the Astros, who have the best record as of this moment at 102 and 54, only by a half game, because the Yankees are at 102 and 55. 
And to break down the schedules for those two teams this week, Yankees, as we know, they'll be in Tampa for two. So they have a day off today. Two in Tampa, Tuesday, Wednesday, day off on Thursday before going to Texas to wrap up their season. As far as the Astros are concerned, they have two against Seattle in Seattle and then four down in Anaheim against the Angels. So certainly easy schedule for them ahead. And the Dodgers, they wrap up on the road in San Diego and San Francisco. So with the Dodgers being two back, you would think that they have home field throughout the NL. That goes without saying. But as far as the World Series is concerned and having that home field advantage, they're certainly going to have to make up some ground. And I don't think they're going to be able to, especially with the way the Astros schedule is. And even to a certain extent, the Yankees. Now Tampa's going to play long and hard to get those two victories against the Yankees this week. So you would think maybe the Yankees will stub their toe a little bit. And not that they need to stub their toe because no matter what their record ends up, whether it's the best in baseball or just the second best in the American League, they're certainly going to have, oh, and they're going to be a tough out A, and they're certainly going to have home field in that first round. Chances are it would be against Minnesota. But the Yankees now, as you look into this final week and get yourself prepared for October, they have a big addition with Luis Severino, who's come in and has pitched to a zero, zero ERA in nine innings. He came back on Tuesday night against the Angels, only pitched four innings. Two, uh, he only gave up two hits, two walks. And then yesterday, five innings, three hits, nine strikeouts. So he's looking like he's pumped up and ready to go. And chances are you may even pencil in for a third game in the DS if you go Tanaka 1 and Paxton 2. And Severino will get another start here. You would think probably Friday or Saturday, depending on the days off. I don't know how Aaron Boone's going to align this because the Yankees, they will not have another game after this Sunday until next Friday. So, no matter who pitches over the weekend, you would think maybe even Tanaka may pitch Sunday just to have him on proper rest. I'm sure he's going to do whatever it takes, Aaron Boone that is, to make sure his staff is going to be not only just well-prepared, well-rested, but certainly try to pitch as close to their days as they possibly can. Now, of course, it's going to be off a little bit because even if you do pitch Tanaka on Sunday... And Paxton will go Saturday, the following Saturday, to pitch game two of the division series. Even if you pitch him Saturday, that's going to be a week's rest in time. So there's going to be more of a layoff for some of these pitchers, but we'll see what happens next Monday. We'll certainly dissect it all, break it all down for you, and get you primed and ready for this postseason run. Also, with the Yankees, they had a couple of tough breaks, one being Dellen Batances, who finally came off of the IL and pitched two-thirds of an inning to get two strikeouts, which was good for him, but in the process has a partial tear of his Achilles, so you won't see him, which is really tough luck for him. Not only that, he's going into a walk year. He'll be a free agent. He's 31 years old. Who knows how that Achilles is going to respond? So if you're a Yankee fan, I'm sure it's tough because he's a guy that's grown up in this organization who certainly have had some very effective and dominant years, but you're not going to see him come October but if you're the Yankees that's a surplus if you would add Batances in the mix and to me having Batances be a part of the postseason roster isn't much of a big deal than it would be for Severino because Severino obviously could give you some length he'll be able to start like I said possibly game three in the division series and then what you do is you'd only hope that even with Batances going to be out here you still have Adovino you still have Britton you still have Canely you still have Green you still have Chapman I mean please and chances are you're going to have CeCe Sabathia which I'll segue to him Sabathia had his final regular season moment at Yankee Stadium 11 years with the team and with the circumstances of Domingo Herman and everything that took place early in the week where he has an alleged domestic violence situation where he's not going to pitch for the Yankees the rest of this year So to have Severino pretty much take over his spot, and it's kind of ironic because they pretty much flip-flop with Severino out for the whole year and Herman coming in was kind of having uh, Luis Severino 2.0, but now you have Severino penciled in for Herman's spot and then Sabathia, you would think, with him at first being on the outside looking in, I could see him being on the postseason roster just to either give them some length or if one of the starters happens to falter early on, you could play Sabathia right in there if 
Paxton goes two and a third or Tanaka runs into trouble, you could always put CC in there. And that's certainly a great insurance policy for the Yankees to have. So you have those two things there with the Yankees, whether well, it's Betances and then Herman, which I tell you, that's just, the Yankees have an embarrassment of riches, so you're not even going to miss him. But it's still just not good moving forward because now you're going to have to deal with a young player, a young pitcher who certainly gave you a lot this year, had a lot to build on, a lot of promise. But depending on how extensive the investigation is going to be and well, what I've read and even heard is that this took place during CC Sabathia's charity event last Monday night where I guess whether it's in plain sight or who knows, but MLB is going to have to deal with that. And then, of course, the Yankees are going to have to also be aware and make sure that they do the right thing. So that's a story for another day, but something that the Yankees are certainly going to have to put on the back burner and deal with, you would think, come the end of October. And then CC, like I said, having that moment was nice for him. Being with the team, amazing in 11 years. I remember when he signed, it seemed like it was the day before yesterday. And now, I, I won't get into all the particulars about, everybody's going to say, hey, you think CeCe's a Hall of Famer? <clears throat> Excuse me, you think that he's worthy of being elected into Cooperstown? When you look at his record and his ERA, he's not a first ballot Hall of Fame. I'm sorry. Will he get in? I think he eventually will get in because of some of the numbers. 250 wins. I understand that it's almost a lock for you to get in the Hall of Fame if you're 100 games over 500. I know Roy Halladay fell a little short of that. I think his all-time record was 203 and 105, but Halladay had the no-hitter in a perfect game on his resume. Both uh, Cy Young candidates, CeCe and Halladay. Of course, CeCe didn't have the no-hitter or the perfect game on his resume, but at the same time, this day and age, 200 is the new 300, and even 250, you would think that's probably even better when you look at it from a whole and he has almost 3,100 strikeouts, does have a Cy Young in his back pocket. So I would think CC Sabathia does get in the Hall of Fame, but if he's a first ballot, I'd be surprised. I don't think he should be a first ballot. I mean, look at Mike Messina. He just got in the Hall of Fame, never won a Cy Young, won 20 games once, although it was in his final year in 2008. Messina had a bunch of great seasons, had a bunch of very good seasons. But the one thing that certainly helped out, even though he never won a World Series, and Cy Young was that he was 120 games over 500. So that pretty much put him into Cooperstown. But again, that was not on the first ballot. So I don't expect the same from CeCe Sabathia. So the Yankees, as they close out this week, you have Stanton back, who's been swinging a good bat, hit a home run the other day, had a double in his first at bat, back from the IL after a long year of being on the shelf. I'll certainly get into all the playoff predictions, what to expect from this Yankee team come next Friday and away we go that's what we have there in the American League as far as the National League is concerned the Cubs I tell you you talk about having just probably the worst timing of all here's a team that last week they won their first game against the Cincinnati Reds they had the second wild card spot pretty much in control the Brewers who have played well even without Christian Yelich remember he broke his kneecap on a swing down in Miami and you would think that the Brewers will probably fold a little bit, not having their MVP on the team. But all they've done is excel. Now, again, they've beaten up on some bad teams. The Padres, the Pirates over the weekend. The Pirates have just been god-awful. But the Cubs, after losing the back two of the series to the Reds, and if you're a Met fan, you were jumping up and down thinking, all right, the Cubs are losing. And then the Cardinals came in there and just swept them. And it seemed as if one game after the other was worse than the next which culminated in the game Saturday. They lost all game, all the games by one run. The Cubs came back from a 4-1 deficit in the ninth inning, only losing 10 on Thursday. They lost on Friday, not in similar fashion, but they lost again by one run. On Saturday, back-to-back home runs in the ninth inning killed any chance of them to win that game. And then yesterday, in the ninth inning, blowing a 2-1 lead, they lose 3-2. So that pretty much put the Cubs season out to pasture And I'll say this, this Cub run, which started back in 2015 when they burst onto the scene, Joe Madden, Javi Baez, which was his first full year, and all the guys that came, you know, Chris Bryant, all the guys that they've brought in pretty much to start off this run. And then 
2016, the following year, they finally got the monkey off the back, 108 years, winning the World Series. And then you look at the last two years, 2017 and 18, just falling short. And now this run is pretty much going to come to an end because Joe Madden's going to be gone. There's going to be some changes that uh, will certainly be made. And the Cubs, I saw something the other day, are, are the Cubs winning their title in 2016 equivalent to the 85 Bears where they should have won more and all, all they did was win the one. They still had that young nucleus. We understand their pitching and their relief pitching certainly didn't pull through when it mattered. And even yesterday, you Darvish pitched an excellent game but ended up falling on the short end. He went into the ninth inning with a 2-1 lead and unfortunately the bullpen couldn't hold it for him. So now the Cubs will say goodbye to this year and the Brewers have certainly been hot. Brewers right now, they'll go on the road to Colorado and Cincinnati to close out their season. And as far as the Mets are concerned, they're in a similar situation with the Indians in this regard. As I said before, if the Indians had any aspirations of winning a division, not only would they have to go 6-0, and but they'd have to have the Twins to go 2-4 and just to have a playing game. If there was, I, I guess with the division there is, because remember last year you had Colorado and L.A. and also Minnesota, excuse me, Milwaukee and Chicago, the Cubs that is, play for the division. And then we saw how that shook down, where Colorado ended up going to Milwaukee after they beat the Cubs, and then Milwaukee beat the Cubs to win the division. And then L.A. hosted Atlanta in their round last year. So now, if you're the Mets, you have seven games here because you got four against the Marlins and three against Atlanta. So you have to run the table here and hope that the Brewers go two and four. So they have to lose both of these series then you take your chances next Monday. As of right now, I don't think that's going to happen. The Brewers, they've certainly been hot. Can they get cold here? Of course. Any, you can't predict this stuff. It is baseball. It is sports. This is why they play the games. But the Brewers, I don't think, have come this far just to kind of fall by the wayside here. It'd be nice if the Mets somehow, some way, could go into the weekend alive. And I will say this about the Mets. I'm not going to go past this past week. I mean, I could talk about Pete Alonso and what he's done, 50 home runs. And I hope he at least ties or even surpasses Aaron Judge's home run rookie record, which would be astounding, to say the least. And I'm going to get to the home run ball in a second because that's also a story that we have to underline here and discuss real quick. But as far as the Mets are concerned, it would be nice for them to get to the weekend with a chance. We all know it's a snowball's chance in hell. I don't think they're going to make the postseason. The time has run out on them. Maybe if the season was 182 games, quite possibly, but we all understand that that's not the case. So all you can expect from the Mets this week is just try to fight hard, which they have done. you got to give them credit. And that leads to the next thing. Because they played so well, and look at it. They lost that first game in Colorado. You figure out they could have folded the tents, and that would have been it. And especially in that third game when they came back and won in the ninth inning, they were down 4-3. So you got to give it up. And that's also an indictment on the manager. Now, I could get into a couple of things that he's done over the week, but I won't because that's, I'm going to go on a little Met diatribe. No, I'm not going to do that. But you would think with the way they played here, Mickey Calloway, he's going to be back. And the Met fans are probably not going to like to hear that, but I will say this. He's going to have a short leash going into next year because this team is going to be expected to win. I understand a lot of people thought that they could make a wild card this year. And we understand they're still light years away from the Braves, although they have good young talent and a good young core. They don't have Ronald Acuna Jr. They don't have the young pitchers coming up. Because remember, a lot of these Met pitchers, they're here. Whether your name is Noah Syndergaard, Steven Matz, Zach Wheeler, who knows if he's going to be back. Chances are he's not. Jacob DeGrom, we get that. But also, you have to look at this team moving forward as the Braves, with all their young talent, that they're going to be the team to beat in this division. They've already won the division two years in a row. But next year, they're going to be poised to challenge them. And if they had any semblance of a bullpen this year, who knows? They probably could have challenged them this year. But that is not the case. Here we are right now, knowing that the Mets and everything that they've done in the second half of the season is certainly great to build on for next season. But Mickey Callaway's going to be in a hot seat early if this team does not play consistent. Forget about good starts. Forget about right out of the gate. Uh Uh-uh. They need just to play good, crisp baseball to get on the way for next year. And that's it. But that's a story for another time. As far as the home runs, at the end of the day, we know it's about the team. 
It's not about celebrating individual accomplishments. Although we looked at last year, DeGrom, we all wanted him to win a Cy Young, and it looks like he's on his way to winning another one, which is unbelievable when you think about it. But as far as Alonzo in the home run mark, yes, I guess maybe to needle the Yankee fan, oh, it'd be great if he gets 53, even ties Aaron Judge. But let's face it, people. They got to do something with that baseball because the baseball is the problem not only in 2019, but just in the last two years as these home run records are just being shattered left and right. Right now, the Yankees have 298 home runs, one more than the Twins, who led pretty much this whole year as far as the team is concerned. And now, who knows? One of these two teams is going to have well over 300 home runs. But the record's going to be meaningless unless they do something with the baseball. Now, hopefully, they'll look into this. Hopefully, whatever it is, the manufacturer, whoever makes these baseballs, will do something to it because it's just an absolute joke. And not to knock this guy for it, but for Brett Gardner to have 25 home runs, I mean, please, did you see his numbers last year? And that's all you need to know about baseball and all these home runs. So that's not to say that Pete Alonso can't hit 50 home runs in his sleep. We all know he's a big guy. He's the polar bear. He can hit him out of any ballpark. But for him to hit that many to start off his career, just like Judge did back in 2017, and I understand injuries have derailed a little bit of his production over the last two years, but... 50 home runs, I mean, that's, to hit 50 home runs in any major league season was an accomplishment, but it's almost as if over the last few years, it's just the norm. So baseball, they need to do something with that because the stat has become a joke, but I do hope in all that, I know I sound hypocritical here because you know, you, you're rooting for your players. Yes, I'd rather have the postseason than for Alonzo to get the record or even tie it, but at the same time, it's something to root for. It's something to at least watch here over the last week of the season even if the Mets not, aren't, aren't going to make it, just like we did last year to watch Jacob DeGrom try to get a Cy Young. And DeGrom will have his final start Wednesday night against the Marlins, so I'm sure he will uh, close out his season in fine fashion. So right now, before we move on to the NFL, right now when we're looking at baseball, the AL is unclear because we don't know who's going to get the best record overall. But I would think, as of right now, the NL is going to look like this. You're going to have the Dodgers host the winner of the Milwaukee Brewers and Washington Nationals. And we'll get into all that next week as far as the wild card's concerned and break it down and predict. And then you'll have St. Louis going to Atlanta to start off the NLDS. And like I said, the American League is tough. You know, I'm not going to get into all these, oh, if Houston has the best record, then it's Yankees. No, for what? It doesn't make any sense. It's just a waste of breath. And we'll certainly talk all about that. Next week, as we preview the hunt for Red October here on the J Reels podcast. All right, now we turn our attention to the NFL. And week three, although it wasn't as stunning as far as the early games are concerned, yeah, you did have a couple that were shockers, whether it was Detroit winning in Philadelphia, which was good for the Lions as they're now 2 0 1. I mean, who would have thought that after three games, and especially with the way they performed out in Arizona, having that big lead? Arizona coming back and then ending in a tie that the Lions would right now be not undefeated, but certainly have not lost a game to this point. But the big story coming out of the NFL yesterday was what took place in Tampa. And early in the week, here in this town, Eli Manning, of course, is football royalty for what he's done and certainly not going to break down all of his accomplishments. But I'll get to Eli a little bit later because it's about Daniel Jones. A lot of people criticize, including yours truly. The draft pick, knowing that at number six overall, a quarterback from Duke, if you think about Dave Brown, a former Giant quarterback in the 90s, a lot of people had visions of him dancing in the fans' heads, thinking that, oh, geez, if this quarterback is anything like the other quarterback from Duke, then this organization is going to be doomed. That is not the case only after one game. And you have to give him credit for what he was able to pull out and accomplish here, down 18 to start the third quarter. And getting that big play for Engram, which was huge, kind of get them back into the flow, back into the mix of the game. And I understand they were a missed field goal away, and we wouldn't even discuss this today. Because at the very end, they had pretty much a chip shot, 34-yarder, which was missed at the buzzer. But if the Daniel Jones era is anything, and I'm not trying to compare to Michael Jordan people, but considering the first time we saw Michael Jordan in a big sta- at a big stage and a big moment, the... NCAA championship game 1982 against Georgetown hitting that shot and for Daniel Jones to come out slinging the way he did and running with his legs and showing the athleticism is the reason why they drafted him 
number six overall in this past draft. Certainly, the future looks very bright. But again, even though it's one game, we cannot start constructing the statue outside of MetLife. This isn't a throw cold water on the kid. He showed a lot of poise. He certainly played with a lot of confidence. Yes, he has to control the ball. He has to possess it as best as possible. He had that fumble there in part of the game, which was part of the reasons why he had those issues in preseason, especially in that game against the Bears. He needs to protect the ball a lot better, as we all know. And that goes for any quarterback, but especially a rookie quarterback. But give him credit. And the team bounced back. We all know that defense is horrible. Mike Evans had three touchdowns in the first half, and you're thinking, oh, geez, this is going to be a runaway type game. But they held on. The quarterback, like I said, certainly showed a lot of poise, and they were able to pull off a victory, a much-needed victory, because 0-3 easily becomes 0-4 in this league and so on. Uh, With the Redskins coming in this weekend, now the Redskins have a Monday night game, so who knows how they'll fare after tonight against the Bears. But with the Redskins coming in and then the schedule getting a little bit trickier, this was a game that the Giants, just for confidence sake, because they're not going anywhere this year, but for their confidence, for their morale, was certainly an enormous boost. And as for Eli, I'm sure he has to be stewing. I'm sure on the inside he's probably dying. What he saw out there yesterday, knowing that he cannot even, from an athletic standpoint, do a tenth of the things that Daniel Jones does, it's got to eat at him. But at the same time, we all know how big of a sport he is. And Daniel Jones is kind of in that same makeup, which is good. You know, Daniel Jones, again, he came from Duke. It's a basketball school. We understand that there were issues with his receivers dropping balls last year, that he would have had better stats and probably would have been maybe a top two pick as opposed to being sixth overall. And now that after this one game and the momentum, and hopefully they could just build on this from now to the end of the season, to have Eli on the precipice of his career pretty much just walking off into the sunset, not only is it bittersweet for the Giant fan and for everything that he's done, if the Giants were just to say to Eli to let him go at the end of the year, and I get that it's tough to just release the past. And what I mean by that is to let go of everything that this man had done for this organization over the course of 15 years and to just drop him like a bad habit, to kind of do what they did to Phil Sims after the 93 season. And it was much different with Sims back then because he had so many injuries throughout his career and especially toward the latter part of that career that they had no choice. And this was pre-free agency also. So you got to remember that. Free agency was in full bloom that offseason. So economically, it didn't make any sense to bring Phil Sims back. And we all know the cavalcade of quarterbacks, including a one Dave Brown that I mentioned earlier, was part of that mix until you got to Eli Manning. And we talked earlier about the CC Hall of Fame possibilities. And to me, the same with Eli in this regard. In my eyes, he is not a first ballot Hall of Famer. He just isn't. And people could laugh at me more to this than to the CC argument. We get the two Super Bowl victories, the two Super Bowl MVPs. But he had not lived his life in the postseason. He had only had, let's face it, the two long postseason runs, which you can't take away from. No doubt. And I'm not going to sit here and dispute that. But let's just say for the argument of this discussion, if you do take that away, you don't have much left. And right, Jay Rudy, oh, you just contradicted yourself. I get that, but come on, people. When you look at across the board, and let's just look at the quarterbacks of his draft. Now, we understand Phillip Rivers, he's got the numbers. He's compiled all those numbers. Chances are he's probably going to go in the Hall of Fame. We get that. He does not even sniff the Super Bowl. He's only been to one championship game, and that was in 07 against the Pats. And off the top of my head, I can't even tell you what his lifetime playoff record is. But it's probably somewhere around 500, and it's probably a game under 500 because he's lost more than he's won. So I would say it's probably somewhere in the vicinity of four and six, five and six, somewhere around there. And then you look to Ben Roethlisberger, and I'm not trying to make this a Steeler Giant thing or Ben better than Eli, but for the three Super Bowl appearances and the two that he's won, and he didn't win any MVPs. And if it wasn't for the San Antonio Holmes catch in the back of the end zone, I've said this time and time again, he would have been the MVP of that Super Bowl. But He's won more games than Eli, because remember, Eli's at 500. And not only that, but he's 13-8 and eight in the postseason. Now, double-digit wins in a postseason, that's a very good sample size. That's not to knock Eli's 8-4, and four, but 13-8, and eight, 
He's played in almost 10 more playoff games than Eli. So that accounts for something. It accounts for the dominance in being a Hall of Famer. And I'm not trying to say that Eli is not a Hall of Famer, because I think he is. But if he goes in on the first ballot, I mean, please. Not to say there needs to be an investigation, but you got to look at the whole picture. And I understand Jim Kelly's in the Hall of Fame, and if Jim Kelly's in the Hall of Fame, then Eli on roller skates would be in the Hall of Fame. Even though they're two different eras, early 90s as opposed to here, 2004 to 2019. But to close the book again, I'm not trying to say he is not a Hall of Famer, but I don't think he's going on the first ballot. And it also depends on when he retires and who's going to be that class of that year. So let's just say in the year 2026, who else is going into the Hall of Fame that deserves to be in before Eli? That's what you have there. And the Giant fan, they have to be giddy this morning because as we all know, preseason doesn't mean anything. And obviously he was very impressive minus the fumbles and being able to protect the ball. But if this one game is any indication, I know we made the comparison to Michael Jordan in that first game and that pretty much set him off for his whole career. I can't say you're going to expect that from a Daniel Jones, but if there's any indication that that's how he's going to start off his career, then boy, the future looks very bright. As far as the rest of the league is concerned and the games, I'll go through the 3-0 and and the 0-3 teams. I figure that's always fun to dissect, see who's going to fall off from 0-3 and see who could bounce back from 0-3. But some of the games yesterday, not really anything that's going to have you at the edge of your seat. I know the Giant game toward the end, they had the touchdown and the missed field goal. The Colts were very impressive yesterday. Jacoby Brissett, give it up to him, 300 yards. He looks like he's very comfortable in Frank Reich's offense, and rightfully so. Remember, he played in this offense two years ago. Knows the system. They have the utmost confidence in his ability, and he's certainly shown that here in the first three weeks. The Chiefs put it on the Ravens. Mahomes off to another fast start. Ravens tried to catch up, tried to make hay, but certainly fell short. Another game, I mentioned the Lions and what they did. I know they had some special teams touchdowns, and the Eagles left scrambling to wonder what what this season could be it's still early but now with the Cowboys two games ahead of them you got to wonder what's going to happen in Philadelphia now in the weeks to come considering Carson Wentz his health his ability which nobody is doubting but knowing that Nick Foles had had to come out of the woodwork and save their season two years ago to win a Super Bowl and then on top of that even get to a divisional round where they could have won not to say there's going to be the argument they should have kept Coles and let Wentz go but now we're going to see what, the, what a true leader in Carson Wentz is going to be here now that they're under the gun two games behind the Cowboys. Texans had a very good win in L.A. against the Chargers. What about the Saints? Saints also put it on the Seahawks there behind Teddy Bridgewater, and they did a wonderful job in the Pacific Northwest, especially with the elements and the rain. Browns had a shot to tie the game yesterday, but Baker Mayfield... Not one ball was thrown in the vicinity of Odell Beckham Jr. Not only that, Freddie Kitchens on a play call in a fourth and nine with a draw. But not only that, even on that final drive, why was he running the ball with Nick Chubb? He had three timeouts in his back pocket. I get you want to milk the clock. I understand that. But to me, that's just a part of Freddie Kitchens being a coach. He should know better. And who knows? They're one and two. And you wonder if the ship is starting to sink there a little bit. And remember, that is the classic right there with all the talent that's on that team. And the way they've set themselves up for this year, that is the classic front-running team. And it's only three games, and they have Baltimore coming in, or they're going to Baltimore, I should say, this weekend. So that's going to be a true test for this Brown team to see if they could not only pull out a win on the road in the division and not fall to 1-3. Bills now 3-0, 21-17. Bills actually had a late score. They were down 17-14, so Josh Allen is showing improvement. But now... They go into the deep end of the water because New England, they were up 30 to nothing and they called off the dogs and didn't cover the spread. So if you choose them yesterday to cover, what was it, 23 and a half, you would have lost because the Jets did get a backdoor cover there on some special teams and a defensive touchdown with Jamal Adams. But now the Patriots come into their building this week and this is going to be the true test right here. So we'll see how that shakes down. The Jaguars and all the Jalen Ramsey talk would die down at least for one week as they win Thursday night against the Titans. 
Gardner Minshew is becoming a folk hero, as I said last week. You had the Packers beating uh, the Broncos there at Lambeau. Cowboys, ho-hum against the Dolphins. Dolphins only scored six points and have scored 16 points in the three games. Panthers, Kyle Allen filling in for a one. Cam Newton, great job by him, and he's actually from Scottsdale, so kudos to him and what they did by uh, beating the Cardinals out in the desert to get themselves in a win column. And finally, last but not least, you have the Monday night game, as I said before, Chicago and Washington. And last but not least with the Steeler game yesterday, Early in the week, the Steelers made a trade with the Miami Dolphins, sending their number one pick of next year in return for Minka Fitzpatrick, the defensive back who, of course, played at college in Alabama under Nick Saban. And there was a lot of controversy around that, especially amongst the fans and even some of the media looking at that to say, oh, the Steelers should have tanked this year to try to get one of the two quarterbacks for next year, which to me is two problems with that. One, you have Ben Roethlisberger signed two more years after that. So you're not going to tank just to potentially bring in a quarterback that's not going to play for another couple of years. So that's number one. One A is that they have Mason Rudolph that they drafted last year and they want to give him a shot and they feel like he's ready to step up. Now, yesterday, I'll get to the game itself. He certainly had his ups and downs, but there's no way they're going to do that. And then number two, the Steelers are too proud of an organization to tank. So for anybody out there that's thinking, Oh, why do we give up our number one pick? This is a bad decision for the Steelers. They certainly would have had a great shot to probably get somebody with some impact. Well, you saw the impact yesterday in the first game by not only intercepting a pass, I understand it was tipped, but also forcing a fumble down near their own goal line. So how are you going to look at it, people? With Sean Davis going on the IL because of a shoulder, they needed to get some sort of reinforcement, and that's probably going to be it for Sean Davis as a Steelers concerned because he's going to be a free agent after this year. So now you bring in a guy who has a world of talent, arguably the best defensive player down in Miami when he was with the Dolphins. And now you bring him here. He's only owed $6 million over the next three years. So you have a very reasonable contract. And then on top of that, the Steeler defense certainly got an upgrade with this kid here with all the other young talent that they have in their secondary, whether it's Terrell Edmonds, whether it's Cam Sutton, Cam Kelly, et cetera. And that goes with the linebacker that they drafted, Devin Bush as well. So I thought it was a good trade. And not only that, the Steelers are not, and I underline, not the Cincinnati Bengals. They're not the New York Jets. They're not the Miami Dolphins. They're not the Denver Broncos. They're a bunch of other bad teams and not the Washington Redskins. So even if the Steelers win six games this year, chances are they may be drafting anywhere between six and ten, depending on all those other teams do. And I didn't even throw in the Giants, who even after they win yesterday, who knows? Maybe they'll end up being somewhere in that 6-10, and 5-11 to 7-9. and nine. That remains to be seen. But again, the Steelers, they're too proud. They have a lot of pride. They're not going to just mail in this season. And for the Steeler fan to just kind of be in an uproar over this trade is ridiculous because now they have another defensive player. And as we all know, the Steelers need more defensive players considering that this is a unit that's certainly given up a lot of yards. That's certainly given up a ton of touchdowns here so far in the season. And to go to the game yesterday, this is how you break it down. They had four, four, four turnovers. They were plus four in the first 20 minutes of the game. And all they got was six points. And then the two turnovers that they happened to give back in the second half, that translated to 14 points. So in a nutshell, there's your ball game. Mason Rudolph was not good. He only had 40 yards passing in the first half, 8-15. to 15. Did show some flashes, kind of like he did last week against Seattle in the second half, making some good throws, whether it was to Juju on that big touchdown play and even Deontay Johnson threw a nice ball there as he was wide open. The defense, what could you say? As tough as it was to lose that game, the defense did do their job. I get they didn't do it on the last series there. At 3rd and 11, even at 20-17, to Mark Barron gets called for a hold, which it was, and then they scored a touchdown with a minute 15 to go. But here, was, here it was the game when you think about it, these two plays. As San Francisco was marching down, their fifth turnover of the day, they get that fumble. They were sloppy too, the Niners. They weren't really impressive if you ask me. But they get the fumble there, which was recovered by T.J. Watt. All the Steelers had to do was run out the clock, and what happens? James Conner fumbles the ball, gives it back, and then the Steelers, although they could have made a stop there on that third and 11, which they did, if it wasn't for the hold, they would have lined it for a field goal. You never know what could have happened. Wide left, wide right. Chances are he would have made it, but it would have been tied. Steelers would have had the ball. Could have been a different outlook of the game. 
but as it was, not to be the case as the Steelers lose. And right now the Steelers are 0-3. They haven't been 0-3 since 2013 when they started off the season 0-4. And even in that year, when they started off 0-4, they were 8-8. Tomlin, as we know, has not had a, a losing season. They have the Bengals coming into their building next week, which is a just an awful Monday night game. Uh, you can't two zero and three teams on a Monday night. Oh, I know when the schedule makers put that out, they were thinking, "Hey, maybe we can get some of that luster from the Vontez Perfect, Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown days." But uh, uh-uh, uh, this is going to be a far cry from that. Uh, so that is going to be your Monday night game. As we look at the games this week, you actually have a few good, interesting games on the docket, highlighted by Pat's Bills. That's your one o'clock game, Chiefs and Lions. Let's see if the Lions can step up in class as they'll host the Chiefs in their high-flying offense this uh, Sunday. Browns and Ravens, it's only fascinating from the standpoint if the Browns lose, what does that mean? Uh, Is there going to be a mutiny on a coach? Is there going to be some sort of drama coming out of Cleveland? Certainly, uh, we'll take a look at that. The Sunday night game was a good one, Cowboys and Saints. Talked about the Bengals-Steelers Monday night game. And then your Thursday night game, not too bad, Eagles-Packers. We'll see where the Eagles are at as the Packers are 3-0 to start off this season. And to kind of go through that before I get to my next point with the NFL. Your 3-0 and teams right now, New England, Buffalo, Kansas City, Dallas, Green Bay, the Rams, and the Niners. And you got to throw in Detroit because they're 2-0-1. So when you look at these teams listed here, we know New England's legit, KC's legit, Dallas, the Rams. You want to say Green Bay? Now, Green Bay's Chicago. And then, uh, who did they play week two? Off the top of my head, I can't remember. But, uh, and then yesterday against Denver. Denver's terrible. Oh, they played Minnesota. Do you think that the Green Bay belongs in that class? I guess you'd have to say only because of the quarterback. And their defense has been pretty good. But we all know Buffalo... That certainly, we have to see how that shakes out, as well as San Francisco. Those are two teams that you could see out of the three and O's falling fast. And on the flip side, the O and three teams, and there are plenty: Miami, the Jets, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Denver, Arizona. Well, Arizona's O two and one, and then Washington right now is O and two. That could change tonight, but as of right now, they haven't won a game. I don't see any of those teams going upward as far as even being a threat to make the postseason. And we know what the odds are for a team that's 0-3 or even 0-2. The percentage is very high, so imagine 0-3. I just think that the teams that are bad, Dolphins, of course, the Jets are going to have a long year. The Jets are going to start off 0-6. And they have a bye coming up this week as well as the Niners. Just keep that in mind. So you have an 0-3 team going into a bye and a 3-0 team going into a bye already as we start off the byes. Uh, The Broncos look like they're going to have a long season. Pittsburgh... Like I said, they're too prideful. That's not to say they can't go four and twelve, but you would think that some they're going to have their flashes this year and their moments. Bengals with a rookie coach and Dalton has not played well. You're going to have some growing pains in Arizona. You would think, although Murray has a ton of talent. I watched some of him yesterday, and he was certainly made some great throws. And his ability to play the quarterback position is uncanny. But again, he still is a rookie. And in Washington, who knows? Jay Gruden. In their situation there. As you look at those teams, Pittsburgh probably has the reputation to have anything of a decent season, but besides that, decent is what? Like I said, 6-10, and ten, considering. And the thing with Roethlisberger, his arm, no Tommy John surgery, so he'll be coming back next year. It's been confirmed that uh, surgery, once everything is cleaned up, he'll be ready to go come camp next year. So we'll certainly... Keep an eye on that, and hopefully there'll be no complications moving forward. Now, one other thing I want to get to is the, I call it the NBA envy with the NFL player empowerment. Now it seems over the course of the last few weeks, I know this thing started with AB last year, and I'm giving you 30 seconds. AB shot himself in the foot. Let's just call it as we see it. He could point fingers at Robert Kraft. He could point fingers at Ben Roethlisberger, but guess what, my guy? You got to point the finger at yourself, and that's all there is to it. He's not going to play this year, you would think, considering all these allegations that have come out, and I think any team would be off their rocker to try to sign him this year because it'll be a PR disaster. 
So that's all I got to say about Antonio Brown. Not wasting any more breath about him. But you could say he was the one that started this whole empowerment, getting himself out of Pittsburgh, got the deal he got, and we see where that left him. But between him, of course, Jalen Ramsey here over the last week plus, we know Melvin Gordon, he's still holding out. But the thing with Melvin Gordon is, is remember, he wasn't franchised, or didn't even get to that point like Le'Veon Bell did, where he kind of just waited it out to get the free agency. Since he's not even at that point, he has to report by November 30th. If he doesn't show up by then, he's not a free agent next year. So he'll lose that right. And if he's smart, he should show up sooner than later. But with all these players, whether it's that, you know, Le'Veon Bell, of course, in the past, Ezekiel Elliott, even Minka Fitzpatrick to a certain extent, and that one was a shocker because the Dolphins could have said, no way, you're part of our future, kid. There's no way we're going to let you go. But they could talk, we're not tanking for two or all we want. And the Steelers weren't part of that mix as far as being a trade partner. It wasn't as if the Steelers ran to the phone to call to find out about him. It was a combination of Sean Davis, their safety, being out for the year. And although there were a few feelers out for Minka Fitzpatrick, but the Steelers were low on that list. But I guess people didn't want to part with their number ones. The Steelers said, hey, it's worth the risk. So far after one week, it's shown that it's been worth it. And away we go. But you wonder now if this is going to trickle down with some of the other players that are going to be unhappy or some of the other players that feel like, oh, I got one year left or I'm going to be franchised. I want out. Now, the trade deadline for the NFL is October 29th. And we still have more than a month to go. But as teams start to fall off the radar here and players are looking to get the first exit, wherever it may be, to a team that has obviously contention hopes, I can see as we get second week, third week of October, there's going to be a ton of rumblings of players looking for the exit and trying to get to that contender to hopefully make a long playoff run and get to a Super Bowl. I don't want to say it's going to be comparable to the NBA. I can't go that far. NFL is a much different beast than the NBA, but you're starting to see it. It's just a matter of how these teams are going to play chicken with their players to say, all right, we'll trade you, or uh-uh. You're going to be part of this team until you're franchised once, twice, ten times, whatever it is. Of course, you can't franchise them ten times, but you get my point. And unless they pull a Le'Veon Bell after the first franchise the way he did, then if that person wants to sit out, that player just says, uh-uh, I'm not playing this year, then hey, that's on him. And then if he's fortunate, he'll get his money the year after. But I don't think it's going to be comparable in any way, although in this day and age, you just never know. All it takes is one player. All it takes is for one shoe to drop, or in this case, for one stone to drop, and then it just rolls down that hill and becomes a big, big, giant mess for the NFL owners and maybe even for the league. We'll see if that's the case. But again, NFL is much different. It's 53 players. NBA, we know all it takes is two, three players to build a championship team. So we'll keep our eye on that as we get closer to the trade deadline. And one thing about the NBA, I will say this, they're now starting to clamp down and put some rules in on the tampering. And what we mean by that is before July 1st, where NBA free agency begins, a lot of these teams, and we saw it this past summer, whether it was Kawhi Leonard getting in the ear of Paul George's agent to say the only reason I'll come to L.A. is if you could trade him, and having that deal brokered, from Doc Rivers to Steve Ballmer to OKC, Sam Presti. Obviously, that's not going to happen moving forward. So what they're trying to institute is fines up to $10 million in draft picks. Now, that's a good start, and I think that would certainly help in not having these players quote-unquote transact prior to the July 1st free agency period. But you know there are going to be loopholes. You know there's going to be ways out of it, whatever it may be. But we'll see. Unless the one team, there's evidence where there's some tampering, until that team gets exposed, I could see this happening on a very subtle tip. I don't see this being just full out there blatant where here it is on whatever it is, June 23rd. Uh Uh-oh, Kawhi Leonard is now talking about going to LA, but only if player XYZ is part of his trade demand. So we still have some time. And obviously, not until next summer, until we get any type of tampering or even before the trade deadline in February. But we'll see as this all unfolds 
as we get closer to the NBA season. And I know a lot of the training camps open a week from today. And I thought the NBA season started around the 15th or 16th, but it actually starts the 22nd. Where you have New Orleans going to Toronto as they raise their first banner and followed by the Clippers and Lakers. That's your opening night in the NBA, but it's not until the 22nd of October. So training camps open next week. The NHL season opens next Wednesday, believe it or not. That's right, NHL next week. And we'll talk about all that next podcast and, of course, the NBA in the weeks to come leading up to both of their seasons. Now to close out my hero and zero of the week. Oh, real quick. College football, I got just two notes. Michigan spots Wisconsin a 35-point lead. And I know Jim Harbaugh has to be sick. I'm not a Michigan fan. I really don't have a college football team that I root for. But for everything going into the season, knowing that this was pretty much, not going to say his last stand, but he knew he had to try to get to be one of those four teams to be part of the mix to win a national title. Well, certainly it didn't help that they lose to Wisconsin as they just buried them. And right now, as of today, they're ranked 20th in the country where Wisconsin is up to 10. So if you're a Wolverine fan, I know you got to be licking your chops and you're hurting right now. But then the other news was Pitt beating UCF the other day. And Pitt almost beat Penn State the week before. So they've actually showed a lot of fight here this early part of the season. So those are a couple of big notes there from college football over the weekend. This coming weekend, you have no big games. Uh, Again, college football is not going to really kick off until you get deeper into the season. Obviously, toward the end of the season, everything is pretty much chalked now with the top guys, whether you're Clemson, Alabama, and so on. So that's all I got there for college football. As far as my hero and zero of the week... My hero of the week is Nelson Cruz. And the reason why I say that is because he hit his 40th home run yesterday. And we understand, like I said earlier, home run has become cheap right now, the way the ball's wound up, et cetera, flying out at a, at a rate that you can't even calculate. But not only did he hit his 40th home run of the season, but he hit his 400th of his major league career. And here's a guy that, when you think of Nelson Cruz, unfortunately you're going to think about that game six in St. Louis with one out in the, what was it, Bottom of the 11th inning, I believe it was. Misplayed that fly ball. And the Rangers, I don't know if their organization has recovered from that, but they've never won a World Series. And not to put it all at the feet of Nelson Cruz, but for him to get 400 home runs, very good accomplishment. Good for him. The Twins have have done big things this year as they try to secure the AL Central. So I'm going to give him a kudos as my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, of course, I could have gone a zillion directions with this one, but I'm going to go with Theo Epstein. And people are going to say, whoa, Jay Reels, why Theo Epstein? Well, you look at the Cub meltdown here over the past week, and you look at Craig Kimbrell. Here was a guy that the Red Sox didn't even want to resign, and they had bullpen issues. And I get that Theo Epstein was desperate. And not to put it all on this one acquisition, but if this was a microcosm of the Cub year, it was this signing. Three years, $43 million, his ERA is six and a half. And on Saturday, he gave up back-to-back home runs in the most critical game of the year as the Cardinals went in there and swept him. And Theo Epstein, we get it. Chances are he's going to be in the Hall of Fame for what he did in Boston, breaking that 86-year-old hex, and we know about the 108-year-old curse with the Chicago Cubs. But this one falls at his feet because with everything that had transpired this year, things that were unforeseen, whether it was Ben Zobris having to take leave, the Addison-Russell issue, trying to get you Darvish on track, and then now Kimbrell just melting down at the worst possible time. Unfortunately, I could put it on Kimbrell, but it's not all on him. It's on the GM. And for this run and for everything that they've done, only winning that one World Series is a little bit of an embarrassment knowing that this team looked like they were going to be destined to win more than one World Series. So Theo Epstein, I got nothing but respect for you. You've done a tremendous job in both of these places, but for this year and with that acquisition, I'm sorry, my guy. You are my zero of the week. And that will conclude the podcast for the week. As always, people, forever grateful and thankful for you downloading and listening to what it is I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. Again, for my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been with me on this journey, welcome back. I implore you to do me just a little bit of a solid, if I may. If you could just... Please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, iHeartRadio, whatever it may be. All I ask you to do is just hit subscribe. When you do subscribe, the minute it's released, it'll go right to your phone, your device, it'll pop up. All you have to do is just hit play. 
or if you want to download it, whatever, that's even better. So by doing that, what that's going to do is increase visibility with all the other podcasts that are out there, not even just the sports ones, but every podcast that's out there, and in hopes to generate a ton of interest from guests that I'm trying to get on the program, whether it's former or current athletes, writers, bloggers, broadcasters, etc., you name it. So if you haven't done so already, please do that. I'll be forever uh, indebted to you in doing that because as an independent outlet that I am, producing, editing, writing, and of course hosting, uh, it makes it that much more tricky and that much more difficult. Although I'm going to step up my advertising game, you'll see in the weeks to come. But as of right now, if you could continue to do so, thankfully, I uh, truly appreciate it. Also, you can hit me up on many of my social media accounts, whether it's JReels at Instagram, JReels1, just the number on Twitter, the JReels podcast on my Facebook page, and of course, an email at the JReels podcast at gmail.com. Free, feel free to send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'm open to it, all people. Uh, again, I agree, greatly appreciate it. And also the website, don't forget that, at www.jreels.com to find out more information about me, my archive shows, upcoming stuff, which I plan to update soon, uh, a little gallery, and all that as I deliver everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.